Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where LSU's win over Georgia on Saturday moved them back to the number one spot in the NCAA rankings. The Tigers will face number four Oklahoma in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta on December 28th. And Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Sam Pittman has moved from an assistant coaching spot at UGA to head coach for the Razorbacks. Thank you for joining us for Episode 41, Estimating Time of Death. Tonight, we're joined by Darren Dake from Crawford County, Missouri, where Missouri's offensive line coach will reportedly join Sam Pittman at Arkansas. If that doesn't prove we, what a small world we live in, I don't know what will. A common tactic in post-conviction litigation is questioning the accuracy of the time of death presented at trial and presenting an alternative and exculpatory theory supported by prominent forensic pathologists. In the court of public opinion, those opinions are often held out to be infallible because of the prestige of their proponents and are sometimes represented as scientific evidence by advocates and lay people in media interviews and on social media. Darren Dake is a certified instructor and criminal investigator with over 30 years experience in the field of law enforcement and death investigations and a senior investigator with the coroner's office for more than 20 years. He holds certification as an instructor for the Missouri Department of Public Safety, the Missouri Sheriff's Association, and the Law Enforcement Training Institute, Missouri University, Columbia. He holds national certification as a medical legal death investigator through the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators, and that's ABMDI, as well as being a nationally certified criminal investigator and certified criminal investigations instructor. He's also founding director and lead instructor for the Death Investigation Training Academy, publisher of the Death Investigator magazine, both of which are, for, are investigator-focused resources, and the host of the Coroner Talk podcast. We'll talk with Mr. Dake about time of death estimation in general, including the various factors associated with time of death estimates. Then we'll talk about the basis of alternative time of death theories offered in the Rodney Reed and Larry Swearingen cases, and the pronouncements by their advocates and experts that the cases against them were medically 
and scientifically impossible. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, Lisa. I'm happy to be here again on another great show. Uh, Yes, we did. Uh, How about that? You lose a game and you get a promotion. But uh, we did finally (laughs) hire a head coach. Uh, And, yes, I guess we did poach the offensive line coach from – Missouri, and actually they're talking about the former head coach at the University of Missouri being our offensive coordinator as well. Oh, interesting. Now, Mr. Dake, I just guessed you're from Missouri. I don't know how many universities there are. Yeah, there's a few few universities in Missouri, but I have have to tell you, uh, you all seem like pretty good uh, sports fans and very knowledgeable in sports. I don't know anything about it or care, so I can't communicate on that level. We're going to have to get into that stuff. <laughs> well, that's okay, but I, I just, when I was looking at the, uh, every week I look at the news and sports, and of course LSU did so phenomenal uh, this season that I just kind of kept saying LSU, 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 tooting their horn. And um, when I saw the Sam Pittman from UGA and then saw the coach from the offensive line coach or offensive coordinator from Missouri, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is like kismet. Right. And so I adopted it. So good. You don't support a team. You don't, you know, you're not like a, a rabid football fan. No, I'm not. I, uh, I, I'm glad there's people out there that are, but I am not. <laughs> I'm not really either. I love the Saints, and I love LSU, and that's about it. <clears throat> so, all right. Well, every week we kind of update if cases have anything to update that we've covered before. So I want to go through real quick. Uh, Toria Domchik in Iowa. Uh, we covered his case with Brian Draper where they killed a 16-year-old classmate. Um, his request to have the U.S. District Court uh, vacate his sentence of life in prison because he was a minor at the time he was sentenced has been denied. So right now his sentence of life imprisonment stands. Stephen Avery, the state's response to Avery's appeal at the Wisconsin uh, Appellate Court is due on February 11th, 2020. It was originally due November 13th, but the state requested a an extension of time, and that was granted. And then finally, Rodney Reed, the U.S. Supreme Court, is still considering his petition for a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, based on the denial of his eighth and ninth state post-conviction motions. That is now set for conference Friday, December 13th, 2019. And so that's the that's the news. <laughs> Lisa, I want to ask you real quick about the first one you went over. Uh, okay. Adamchik, I believe his name is. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. mentioned, and 
I apologize. Sometimes I swear I have Alzheimer's as a 30-year-old or almost 30-year-old individual, but uh, is there any particular reason why they uh, did not vacate his sentence? Because I, from what I remember, you know, minors kind of have a uh, certain right. rule book they have to go by for sentencing. Okay. Both Toria Domchik and Brian Draper had sentencing hearings after their convictions. Mm-hmm. And Draper may have pled guilty. Right. But they were each sentenced, and the judge was not sentencing them to life in prison that as a mandatory requirement that okay. you get – you're convicted of first-degree murder, your life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. He considered the the – you know the mitigating evidence that Adamchik put on. He considered the crime. He considered the impact on Kathy Stoddard's family, and mm-hmm. he found that Adamchik was deserving of a life sentence. Uh, I don't know whether it's without possibility of parole, but in mm-hmm. Iowa, and I haven't looked at it, it. I didn't look at it to confirm. Um, in Iowa, life may be life. Mhm. Where if you're if you're sentenced to 20 years you serve a third or two thirds and then right. you're eligible for parole in Arkansas and a lot of states if you're sentenced to life that's an indeterminate sentence. Right. And so there's no serving part of a sentence. So even if it doesn't say without parole you're still pretty much you're pretty much in jail. Not going to Yeah, you're pretty much going to be in prison. For your life, okay. Unless okay. you get clemency from a governor or or a court vacates your sentence and orders a resentencing. Yeah, the reason why I asked about that though was, like I said, I thought there was like a certain rule book, and I thought uh, <clears throat> obviously I'm pretty confident that death is off the table in minors, but I thought life was Correct. as well. I thought the two no, biggies were it's, off the table. It's only. It's only off the table in an in a mandatory sentence for a first degree murder conviction. Whereas an adult convicted of first degree murder would be sentenced to life without parole. Okay. There would be no leeway, no no in this case, Draper and Adamchik both got sentencing hearings after their convictions or okay. after their pleas. Okay. So uh, all right. So yeah, you could still. I mean, it's representative. It's it's against the law to sentence any juvenile to life. But in reality, if they have a sentencing hearing, and the circumstances of the crime are as bad as they were in Cassie Stoddard's case, right? Then yes, they can be sentenced to life. Okay. So. All right, and as I said, we are being joined tonight by Darren Dake. Am I pronouncing that incorrectly? No, Dake. Is it Dake? No, that's right. No, just Dake. Dake. Okay. Most people want to put an R in it for some reason, but it does have it doesn't have an R. Drake, right? All right. Not so. um, (laughs) All right. So let's uh, start off. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? uh, As much as much information as you want to provide. All right. Well, thank you. I'm very honored you invited me to be on the show tonight. Of course, 
you know, the, the, you took all the, the time up front to kind of tell about my background and things like that. But, uh, you know, I've been in, in this death investigation and police work for over 30 years and uh, been in charge of a detective division in, uh, throughout my career, things like that. I just, I, I enjoy the work. I enjoy the investigative side of it. And, you know, again, you, you had mentioned some of my credentials and education and things like that, but I don't need to go, go back into that. But, but I do enjoy the job, and I enjoy talking on these type of things where I can help educate and, and train people in, in some of these things that are a little bit confusing. Right. Exactly, and that's why I listened to your time of death episode on Corner Talk. Okay, yeah. And that was like, oh, I have to reach out to because I have to reach out to him, have to have him on the show because the you know, the way you presented it, it was it was interesting, it was informative, and I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to you know, provide that to my listeners or our listeners on this show uh, because yeah, it is I a topic that comes up a lot. <laughs> right, and what as we, we get into over the next while, uh, we'll learn that uh, sometimes it isn't as straightforward as people might think, uh, but yet there are some things <clears throat> that are fairly solid in science and really can't be interpreted any other way. And a couple of cases we'll get into later I think was – Interpreted a little bit the wrong way, in my opinion, from what I've read. In the initial stage or in the post-conviction stage? It looks like in the initial stage. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. All right. So we have um, there are multiple factors that can be used, and um, so if you could kind of. Uh, help us understand the postmortem physiological changes that a body goes through after death, starting with well, liver mortis. Right, and there's there's a lot, and so and there's a lot of things that, that when it comes to death investigation, one <clears> thing <throat> a word is it depends. There's a lot of things that that can depend whether we're talking about entomology whether we're just talking about a, a PMI, the postmortem intervals of, of a human being, there's things that can affect that. For instance, the temperature, you know, of course, that slows everything down. If it's cooler, if it's hotter, it speeds everything up. If uh, the, the environment the person is in, the surface the person is lying on, uh, the metabolism of the person, is there any medication on board, uh, the activity they were doing prior to death, all of that stuff can, can change how post post-mortem intervals process through the body. Now, they all process through, but sometimes it's a little bit different. Um, you know, there's lividity and rigor mortis, and, and we'd look at algal mortis and things like that. But is there anything specific you want to start on uh, as far as what the body goes through or just kind of go through a whole process of timeline? Well, let's see. One of the things that I've read in different um, – in doing research on different cases – that liver mortis as a, as a factor used to determine post-mortem interval or time of death is actually the least reliable because it's reliable for telling whether a body has moved or not. But it's not reliable as far as a time of death or a post-mortem window. Oh, okay, and, and so yes, that's right. 
except here's here's kind of how lividity works, liver mortis or lividity. So as when the body dies, of course the heart stops beating, and that creates that that does two things. Number one, there's no more pressure uh, built from you know for, for no more blood pressure, and of course the heart uh, you know mixes the blood and plasma and all that up, and so. After someone dies, the blood starts to settle, the red blood cells, or the blood starts to settle to the lowest part of the body. Now, that happens, um, starts happening pretty well immediately, but we start seeing signs of it, you know, within a couple of hours, sometimes a little bit less. Uh, But here's where it can be a little bit odd. Let's say that there was an older person uh, that was dying, and they had a very slow heartbeat. The heartbeat was only working maybe 20 30%. And they were slipping off into death over a few hour period of time. And during that time, because the blood pressure is so low, the, the lividity could actually be starting to settle in the capillaries of some of the in their back or something like that. They're laying on the back. So once they die, that will become uh, more prevalent quicker. Well, now we're looking at that thing. Well, this person might have been dead two hours by looking at the lividity, but maybe they've been dead thirty minutes. See, that's where it's a little bit a little bit subjective. Um, but one thing that we do know about lividity for sure is even though it's affected by temperature and body mass and things like that, within a couple of hours, we'll be able to see it uh, on the body. And what that looks like, of course, is, is a red or maroon look of the skin. And if we push our thumb into it, you know, it'll what we call blanch, which means it turns white and we're just pushing the, uh, the blood out of those tissues. But at some point, it becomes fixed, and the reason I say some point is because that's usually 8 to 12 hours. See, nothing in death investigation is exact time. So 8 to 12 hours, uh, it becomes fixed. And what fixed means is when you push in on it with your thumb, for instance, it will not blanch. And if you was to move a body or roll a body over, that lividity is going to have stained, so to speak, and be fixed, and so it won't settle back the other way so if if you die on your back and within a couple of hours someone rolls you over to your stomach then lividity will leave your back and go towards your stomach but if it's been six eight seven hours something like that that lividity won't leave your back so investigators will walk in and see you laying on your stomach with lividity all across your back and your back of your legs and realize wait a minute this person laid on their back anywhere between eight to twelve hours before they removed that's that is where it can become very important in the investigation side, you know, because it does help okay. establish some alibis. I mean, we are looking at hours, but it does help establish some alibis or put some suspects into the mix. Okay. All right, and then uh, rigor. So, and then rigor mortis starts, and every, everything that dies, rigor mortis will begin, and you know that is chemical reaction in the body okay it's muscles converting lactic acid and it's the ph changes in the muscles and things like that and so the muscles start getting hard they literally just start firming up and getting hard and it's you know a lot of times we'll say well where does lividity start well or or, or rigor mortis a lot of times we'll hear that rigor mortis starts in the fingers and the jaw but reality the the chemical process starts immediately throughout the entire body but the reason we think it starts in the jaw or the fingers or whatever is because that's the smallest muscles so the jaw is going to stiffen up faster because the muscles attached to the mandible and thing uh, are small enough that they get pretty firm pretty quick where 
muscles in your legs take a lot longer to thoroughly get firm. Again, first, you know, we can first see that within an hour or two. Um, usually, uh, within like six to twelve or six to eighteen hours, sometimes as much as twenty-four, it becomes um, fully developed. And what fully developed means is from head to toe, the body is completely rigid. It is, you know, plus three. Every part of the body is completely rigid. The muscles are are, are you almost have you have to be pretty strong to be able to straighten an arm out or something like that, and then that starts going away. So if if it's fully developed in like eight to twelve hours, then probably close to the twenty-four hour mark, it'll start going away. But if it took twenty-four to get fully developed, then it might be as much as twenty-six, thirty hours later that it would start going away. And going away means the decomposition. The muscles have continued to decompose. And you know, the chemical process is, is in, happening at the enzyme level, and then the muscles start to become loose again because of their decomposing. And once that happens, it won't come back. I mean, and if you used to walk up and, and take somebody's arm and you know straighten it out, then that's going to be loose from that point forward, and it, it won't come back. So again, it depends. <clears throat> so we're looking at anywhere between six hours to. 30 hours of the whole process of rigor mortis. And if I can say, that's where sometimes TV has really caused a lot of problems, this CSI effect. You know, I like these shows sometimes because I like to yell at the TV and tell them how they're wrong. But they'll go up, they'll stick it, they'll stick a, a probe in somebody's, in somebody's liver and say, uh, he died at 225 this morning. Well, I call BS on that because that is impossible to know based upon that. Right, right, and that's the on algor mortis. That's a, that's the body temperature. Yes, algor mortis is body and I, temperature. I I had read something interesting uh, over the weekend that the body actually regulates to whatever the surrounding ambient temperature is. It it, it does eventually, and and again. Here, here's that, here's that big word. It depends on on the length of time. So let me get, let me give you some examples. So what we want to say in death investigation, if we if when we're filling out a you know a, a checklist or a, a form at the scene or something like that, the questions are a lot of times asked: Was the body cool to the touch? And we we hear that a lot. Was it cool to the touch? Well, uh, when we train investigators, we train them. You know, don't touch their forehead. Don't touch their stomach. You know, all of that stuff will, may feel cool to the touch because your hands are maybe warmer than what they are. And, of course, there's no blood flow. They're going to feel cooler. So where you would want to know if they were cool to the touch is like axillary, which is under their armpit or in the groin, someplace that has been kind of closed. And that will protect that area, and then that would be considered warm to the touch. But then if we want to look at algal mortis as a whole, the internal body temperature – can give us somewhat of an indication of time of death if we take all variables. So in a perfect world, if a body dies in a 70-degree environment and they are not clothed in heavy clothing and some other situations could be afoot, then they should lose body temperature at about 1.5 degrees per hour. Now, 
after you die, your body temperature will raise sometimes a half a degree to a degree and a half because, of course, chemical process creates heat. And then it starts to wane down. And so if you, you know, if you say, take the internal body temperature and say, well, you know, that's 94 degrees. So then, you know, you take 98.6 minus 94 degrees, that gives you a degree. And then you times 1.5, that tells you, oh, I've been dead for, and I'm doing math in my head here, you know, three and a half hours, mm-hmm. whatever it is. The, the problem with that, though, <clears throat> is that, number one, it's never 70 degrees. Uh, number two, uh, some people run cooler. Some people run a 96, 97, 96 body temperature. You know, the, you get those people out there, it's like they're cold all the time. Yeah, they're cold because they run a 97 body temperature. Well, that throws you off that's by me. an hour. Well, you know, that throws you off by an hour. Um and then, you know, again, what's the person what's the person die on? Because the body loses heat and, and stop me if I get too if I get too in the weeds here, but the body loses heat in three ways. Radiation, conduction, and convection. So radiation, of course, is just, you know, infrared heat losses lying there getting cooler. Just like you would take muffins out of the oven and set them on the counter, they'll just cool off because heat goes away. And that, so that's radiation. And then conduction is passing like from one thing to another. So if a body is laying on a concrete floor, concrete absorbs moisture, absorbs heat, so it's going to cool faster. If they're lying on a heated waterbed, well, you might imagine they won't cool that fast. Um, you know, if they're lying outside on snow and it's 18 degrees outside, they're going to cool a lot faster than if it's July in Lafayette, Louisiana. So mm-hmm. all of that plays a factor in how fast they reach ambient temperature. But in a perfect world, they, a body should reach ambient temperature somewhere between 18 to, 18 to 24 hours. Probably around the 18-hour mark, they'll reach ambient temperature. But again, there are so many factors that come into play there that just taking a body temperature, calculating out time since death, and saying that any, you know, very much accuracy, more than a day or so, you know, that's, that's false science. Can't be done. Right, right. And a lot of cases that I've researched, um, I, I don't know that they even tried body temperature. No. no. It I was mean, never either of those. Some... Yeah, you will get Go some ahead. that will I'm try sorry. body temperature just to, to add, add it part of their report. Uh, but you could never make I mean, it's, that's one piece of it. So if you have body temperature, you know, you have some scene markers, you know, you look at lividity, you, you look at a lot of things, and, and it kind of narrows you down. You cannot just use one thing and come up with a time frame. Okay. All right. And then the next factor that uh, – and these are also things that can uh, – liver rigor and, and temperature – are gathered in the initial stage of the investigation at the scene. Yes. Now, of course, some agencies do not take uh, liver temperature at the scene anymore because, again, there's too many factors. But a proper investigation, the person should be noting whether lividity is consistent with position, whether it is fixed or not, and they also should be noting rigor mortis, you know, what degree that rigor mortis is in, what parts of the body rigor mortis is in. 
that all should be done at the scene. Now, I teach all over the world, and I will tell you that I, I, there are a lot of places where I go <clears throat> that coroners, medical examiner, investigators do not always chart all of that maybe as good as they should. And the problem mm-hmm. with that is the, the, the best time to get that information is right then at the scene, not – well, first off, that's it. You you can't get it later. Well, once it goes to autopsy or to a cooler, it you know it all it all changes. Uh, and so, right. Uh, and again, that's a, that's another reason why uh, there's some places, coroners or medical examiner investigators, the police are on the scene. The police are in charge of the scene, but the body is in charge of the ME or the coroner. But sometimes the police keep the ME investigator or whatever out of the scene, and because they're doing their scene, they say, "Look, you you can get the body later. Let us do our thing." And then they want to say, "Oh, could you tell me a time of death?" Well, if you would have let your coroner into that body to do these assessments quicker, the sooner after death these assessments are taken, the closer to a time of death he can come. You leave him out in the car for six hours and then expect him to come in and do it. It's a lot harder because, again, all the factors we just talked about, you're six hours separated from your best evidence. Mm-hmm. Correct. And the that should be done first before anything else is done to gather that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, along with photographs and you know all the other information that comes along with the, the body exam. But but yes, that should be done as soon as as an investigator can get access to that body. That stuff needs documented. And, and then right. it's documented again if it's going to be on the scene for five or six hours. Then uh, before that body is removed from the scene, it needs documented again because that can give an indication of whether or not that it's progressing fast or progressing slow. It gives a little better idea to the investigator of what, you know, rigor, is, rigor should be well more advanced after six hours, and it's not. That means this is a slow process. Something is slowing it down, and that's, that's good oh. information to have for, the, for, for time of death. Okay. All right, and then another factor is the cornea, or the corneas. Yeah, so there's cornea cl- cornea cloudiness. Your eyes cloud over. You know, again, that's something that can happen within a few hours after death. Sclera drying, which is sclera, is the whites of your eyes. Uh, if you're if you die and your eyelids are partially open. Uh, then you'll have maybe brown lines on each side of your, you know, on the whites of your eyes. Uh, again, mm-hmm. that also, you know, we know that that happens within a, within a few hours after death, things like that. Uh, sclera drying can be fairly quick. But, again, it depends because if I'm lying in a trailer house in middle Missouri in July with a fan blowing on me and my eyes are open, it's 106 degrees in that mobile home with that fan blowing on me. Um, my eyes are going to dry out pretty fast. So right. you go in there and you look at their eyes and you can say, well, according to those eyes, this person's been dead 13 hours or whatever. You know, no, but I've only been an hour. <laughs> it's just very hot in here. So mm-hmm. there's so many factors that, that go into play. All of it is good to collect and all of it is good to know, but every, there's a, you know, you can't just take one thing. This is, this is why I'm pointing out you can't just take one thing. Right, right. Okay, and then we have um, the lovely investigator's favorite favorite thing to deal with, and I'm sure coroners 
um, investigators and police investigators, decomposition. Yes, the lovely decomp. The oh, and and the the uh, the stages of decomposition. Yeah, you start yeah. and with, once you smell it, you will no, never forget it. Uh, when I was a child, and I know it's probably worse, but uh, my great grandfather's house had a rat die in the walls, mm. and it was a sickly sweet. We had to vacate the place for a month. Yeah, we, yeah. we couldn't even go in the house. Yeah. <laughs> it was an old yeah. stone farmhouse. Oh my! And we didn't know where it where it was, and it eventually it was in the entire house. Yeah, and, and that's one thing about the, the smell of decomposition is that it permeates everywhere. Um, you know, just you know, there's, there's there's a lot of stuff that happens before the smell, but uh, the the smell gets pretty intense. And once somebody smells it, you'll never forget it. And in fact, you know, you can be away from the scene, and it's still in you know your nostrils and in the hair of your nose and and things like that. And you smell it all day. I mean, police officers tell me all the time mm-hmm. you know, they they don't like going on scenes with me if, if they're early in their shift because you know, they get whiffs of it all day long. You know, even if and so and so so it's bad. And, and the human body. Um, the human body stinks when it, it all, all, all dead things stink, but the human body, I, I think it's because, you know, the food we put in it, the preservatives we put in it, the, uh, the medications we put in it, it, it just causes the, the decomp smell, you know, to, 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 just to be bad. But, you know, long before the smell happens, first, there's several stages, which I think is what you're wanting to go to, uh, what the way we call it first is fresh and fresh just means you've died. Um, within the, within an hour or two, a couple hours, there's there's no smell, there's no changes. Um, you know, you you pretty well just look fine and normal because there's nothing changes on you. But then after a while, you start bloating, and well, so so before you would start bloating, you will start getting some some decomposition smell, like if you move a body, like in the in the nose and the mouth and things like that, because the the, your lungs will start there's fluid in your lungs that will start uh, because of the com- decomposition and the breakdown of the enzymes and things like that it, this fluid starts becoming pretty stinky and, and if you roll a body over sometimes if they're laying on their side or something there'll be this dark looks like people I think it's blood but not necessarily blood but it's just dark fluid is coming out and, and that stinks you know pr- pretty bad um, mm-hmm. but the, the outside of the body don't look so bad it's just this the smell coming out of the gut, but so let, again, let's say that we're in a 70 degree environment. Now remember, if it's 105, it's different. But in 70 degree environment, sometime within 18 to 24 hours, uh, they'll start getting this bluish green look in the lower abdomen. The usually the lower right abdomen of the gut is where you're going to start seeing it to, to have this greenish tint. And if you walk into a house and you see somebody dead with greenish tint on their on their lower abdomen, you know you're mm-hmm. going to probably need a mask because once you start moving the body, that decomp that's inside that gut's going to start coming out, whatever hole or orifice it can. Um, and, and then it just continues to go through like a, a bloating stage, 
that's where the body continues to decompose on the inside and outside. But, you know, somebody that died at 105 pounds, you know, within three days, they can look like they weighed 380. I mean, the body blows mm-hmm. up, the skin stretches, the body blows up, it turns black. Uh, you get these big, large uh, blisters on your skin, and that's just from fluid in the skin breaking these blisters. Uh, a new investigator might think somebody's burnt, mm. but it's not burnt. It's just black, decomposing. Uh, and, and it's in this stage that if someone if someone has drowned, it's in this stage that they actually then um, start to surface because they're, be, they're becoming buoyant at that point. So then they start to surface. Mm-hmm. And then they float along the surface, whether it be lake or river or something, until they continue to decompose to the point where uh, the everything's released. Uh, The you know all the gases are released. Kind of the skin breaks open. Um, All these gases and fluid and all this stuff comes out. um, And that is when you don't want to be in the house. I'll tell you uh, when that happens. And then the body continues to decompose until it becomes a skeleton. Uh, some environments it may mummify. Some environments you may have, um, you know, adipocure, which is like grave wax. Those are dependent on the environment. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. you know, once you once you get into the skeleton stage, you're looking at generally a full skeleton stage is about a year. Um, it may take a little longer in some environments, but about a year. Uh, if it's in the right environment, it'll be full skeleton. Okay. And then, um, of course, entomological uh, factors can also provide another, some more information about when or what the postmortem interval is. Yeah, entomology is is a wonderful science. It's, um, you know, a study of insects. And so entomology, you know, there are entomologists that collect butterflies and and everything. And, And so, but that's the study of insects. But a forensic entomologist, of course, forensics is anything that you put science and law together, So, as it applies to the courts. So a forensic entomologist takes everything you know about bugs and applies to uh, the law, and in this case, a dead body. Now, one thing that cons- – one consistency in death uh, is the reproduction cycle of a blowfly. That has that has gotten down to where, based upon temperature and environment, an, an, an entomologist can back up the life cycle of those maggots and give you up to the day that the person was presented into that environment. Now, I'm not going to say die because, you know, if they died, you know, early in the morning and someone didn't maybe dump their body until late in the afternoon or something, that can change. But if once they're presented into an environment, a blowfly will find their body almost immediately and start laying eggs on that body. And and there's a cycle that goes through a 14-day period where they lay their eggs. They go through a full cycle, and in 14 days, they, uh, they rehatch out as a fly. And maggots go through three stages of, of molting and things like that. Literally, just within a, a day, another day, another day, they're they're molting and growing, and they can they can decimate a body within just a couple of weeks. Um, maggots mm-hmm. are maggots have one purpose, and that is to eat dead flesh. 
they are very good at it. And they, you know, in studies, you know, some of the classes we've had, like a 50-pound pig, um, you know, we'll have a 50-pound pig that's dead. We'll put it in the environment. We'll have eggs on it within just a few minutes. Um, and within about four days, uh, there is no pig left. Um, they have decimated wow. every soft tissue in that pig. So, but it, when it, you're you know, dealing course, with the... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and finish. I'm no, sorry. no, 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 no. I was it just again. It all depends on temperature. I was going to say because uh, that slows it down. That's what the entomologist is going to want to know. Collect the right evidence, and then we have to have a weather, uh, not only weather at the scene, but then some historical weather because they're going to they're going to want to know the weather in that area for the last few days because if it's been mm-hmm. 90 in the daytime, 70 at night, then they know the map. But if it's been 30 degrees or 68 degrees and bounces back and forth, they can still know the math, but they need to know what those days were. So then um, that tells them how fast that maggot's going to grow. The maggot's going to grow really fast at 95 degrees. It's going to grow really slow in 70 degrees. So, um, you know, 70 degrees is exactly perfect, right? So if it gets down to like 60s, that maggot's going to slow its life cycle down. So 70, 75 that's what these are based on. You move it up to 95, and you're going to speed that up. And also, something else that your listeners may find interesting is uh, we can take maggots, and we can uh, do toxicology on the maggots and feeding on the body. And in, in a lot of cases, we can determine what drugs was in that victim's body from testing the maggots. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that. Um, now, I've also read when you're dealing with a potential interval – of less than 24 to 36 hours, there's not a lot that an entomology can tell you. So you're kind of right because the, the they lay their eggs, and it takes 23 hours at 70 degrees. So you know it takes about a day for the eggs to hatch in the first, you know, first instar of the maggot, and then another 27 or another day to be the second stage. So when you're looking at uh, up to 36 hours type, the maggots are, they were laid, they were there. And so you're going to be, you know, you can, you can be a day or several hours off. You're right. But once you get into four and five days, there's a lot of maggot development there, and then they can really back it up accurately. Mm-hmm. All right. And then we also had, uh, you kind of, um, oh, well, another thing that I think some people don't realize is that the, Information you gather about the victim, their habits, their schedules, where they were when they were last seen, uh, where they were found and when, those things can be important information to supplement the physiological changes. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, doing a complete victimology is the only way that you're going to get any accurate time of death, especially on on someone that's been, uh, uh, you know, dead for several days. You know, it's different if if it's witnessed or if, you know, he left work at 5 o'clock and they found him at 7 o'clock at night or something like that. So so those are easy. But if someone's been dead for multiple days, uh, their habits, their lifestyle is, is really more important than what these scientific changes are, because if it's if it's been a couple three days, rigor may already be gone, lividity's already fixed, the, the bloating's already started. 
So am I two days? Am I four days? I mean, you know, so I, I don't know. And if I'm so person's habits are, are important. And some of the things we look at is, I mean, I'll give you some examples. I have a lady that died. Uh, she was sitting in her chair drinking a cup of tea, and she was dead in her chair looking out the window. Well, we needed to know her time of death. Well, she was in her uh, nightgown. Um, and knowing from her neighbors and knowing from her son that she has a habit of um, putting her night clothes on um, after a bath in the evening, um, she sleeps uh, on one side of the bed. She gets up about 6 a.m. Uh, she makes the bed before she leaves the bedroom, done that for 50 years. She goes in, uh, makes a cup of tea, sits in a chair, watches the sunrise, reads her Bible, and drinks her tea. She's done that for 50 years. So, um, And then after she's done with her tea, she gets ready for the day. Well, well by knowing that, that's better than science. I've got a lady that's sitting here in a nightgown. At the window with her Bible and a cup of tea, the tea has not been drank. Her bed is made. So I know she don't drink tea at night. You know, she might have, but, uh, you know, according to looking at mm-hmm. now, I say, okay, this tells me that she, if she gets up at 6 a.m., it's now 1 p.m. She's died between 6 and 1. All right, so now let's look at the body. Now we look at rigor mortis. Now we look at lividity. Is the lividity fixed? Is it starting to settle in the right places? Um, how far along is uh, rigor mortis? What is algal mortis? Does, you know, does this lady keep the house 90 degrees, or does she keep a nice 68 to 75-degree house? Now I use my science, and I go rigor mortis, lividity, things like that, and I can narrow it down to maybe say, well, it, you know, probably around 6.30 a.m. would be a good accurate estimated time of death. But then again, we also have that son talked to her last night at 5 p.m. He was, she was found at 1 p.m., so we know she was alive at 5, dead at 1. That's the big window. But we can narrow it down with, with habits or, or with, um, you know, they always show up at the senior center, and someone talked to him this morning at 8 o'clock, and they didn't show up at the senior center for lunch. It's now 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Well, that narrows our time frame because they're habits. Um, so, so knowing right. your victim. It is very important in determining really um, their, their, their times of death, even in a homicide case, especially in a homicide case, because we have to know what their normal activity was and did they do something different. And if, and if, and if they're always going to the library, always on Thursday night, there's a library, and no one's seen them since Thursday night, well, we need to figure out who they interacted with at the library because that's where your suspect and them interacted. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how that type of activity helps us. Okay. Yeah, I I agree. And sometimes you'll have perhaps environmental factors, inconsistent uh, time periods from liver, rigor, mm-hmm. and knowing the habits can help you determine whether those are accurate or whether there's something off. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And of so, course, you know, nowadays with video cameras and security cameras, that helps us determine their location. And, um, you know, eyewitness testimony is, is not that accurate. Uh, it's nice to have, but it, just because someone says, oh, yeah, I've seen Margaret walking down the street about two o'clock. Okay, I, I'll write that down. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that doesn't, I can, only, you, I can only go so far with that because they may have thought it was Margaret and it wasn't. Yeah. Or they can think they walked by her house and saw her wave at them. Yes. 
when they did, yeah, she didn't. Margaret she couldn't wave because she was dead. Yeah, exactly. But Margaret does that every day. So when we walk by, and and our mind would just tell us, oh yeah, Margaret was waving at us. Well, that's right. that's how our, that's how our mind that's how our mind works. Sometimes um, people's not lying to you, but uh, we make up our own reality in a lot of mm-hmm. things. Um, and that's another, that's another whole show. But when it comes to witness testimony, sometimes we don't mean to be lying. We just think we really believe what we believe, but we're wrong. Right, correct. And I was going to say I, I'm one of these. I'm one of these believers in the supernatural. It could have been Margaret's ghost waving okay. at you to tell you bye. I've never, I've never seen <laughs> I, one of those. I think in you my probably work, would not buy that one. <laughs> well, I've never seen one. So I, I'm not – I'm never going to poo-poo it, but, you know, I've never seen one. And if someone, if one of them does want to show them to me, I need them to warm me first. Okay. Yeah, that would be quite a shocking experience. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I, I, I know that there's no such thing as a zombie apocalypse, but, you know, if there ever is a zombie apocalypse breakout, us, us in death investigation are probably doomed. Yeah, because they're going to get y'all right off the bat. You're not even going <laughs> to yeah. see it coming. <laughs> Although, taking the head off something will kill it if it isn't already dead. That is true. So if there's ever you know a potential for a zombie apocalypse, just start taking that head off. Sorry, sure. buddy. Mm-hmm. Got to do be it. Because exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to survive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, all right, and then we'll we'll finish up with the uh, the physiological factors, and then we'll take a quick break, and then we'll go into the post conviction and and the read and swearing in cases. Uh, we've got mummification, which can happen in a dry, hot environment. Yep. Like the desert. If my okay. And uh or it can be done chemically, uh, which is how the Egyptians did it. Right. Right. And then Adipakir I never can pronounce that correctly. I didn't take Latin. No, that's right. Uh yeah. <laughs> I've read that that develops in a moist environment. Yeah. And it looks almost like that's soap. why they call it yeah, that's why they call it a grave wax because it's kind of a waxy, you know. You know, think of if you if you exhume a casket, sometimes you're going to see that on there if they've been in a, uh, you know, again they're, they're cool down in the ground, things like that. If they're not floating in water, uh, it, it maybe in a maybe in a cave up in the maybe in the high altitudes or something like that. Uh, kind of a dark, damp area. It's kind of a mold in a way. And so again, it's prolonged exposure to moisture. So they're in they're in a very moist environment, not necessarily underwater, but in a very moist, humid environment, cool, and it creates this, you know, this wax, this adipocure. And a mummification is just drying. And it, you know, mummification kind of it kind of stops the decomposition process, meaning meaning that the sometimes the soft tissue will be gone through maggots and things, but I've seen a lot of extended death cases where the body has mummified, and and some of the soft tissue and stuff is or, uh, muscles and things are still kind of present, 
but you know they're in a mummified state uh, because of because of temperature again very dry it's, it's dried them out it's 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 um kind of like a convection oven you know they decompose but then at some point they did they more like just uh baked and stayed in a in a mummified state mm-hmm. again you could do it chemically uh things like egyptian but we're but again mummification a lot of times you're going to find uh an, some decomposition in that it's just at some point decomposition uh stopped when the body mummified but the, it, it and that, that can give us some time frame but we have to do a lot with weather and location and, and again it you know you, you you could try to mimic it uh in a location and you might not succeed because it's not like this and this and this will create mummification. It's just, there are other factors right. that will go into that. Right. And then finally, um, this is something more that would be determined at autopsy would be stomach contents. Right. And, and again, something that is really, really confusing to a lot of people. Um, again, TV, they think that Stomach contents can give them a lot of information, and it, it can if you can interact with someone within a couple of hours after death. The stomach contents gives us two things. The, the main thing it tells us is if there's stomach contents in there, let's say someone went and had uh, you know, a nice steak dinner on Valentine's Day with their boyfriend, and, and, and you know you could – Go to the restaurant, and you could find out that they had, you know, steak and potatoes and drink red wine and all of this. And uh, and then they promptly left the restaurant. The boyfriend said, "I dropped her off at home, and that was it." But yet, you know, you found you in a road ditch, you know, the next morning, and her full meal was still in her stomach. Well, now we know that after they left the restaurant, he killed her because mm-hmm. because food don't food don't stay in your stomach as long as somebody thinks. Uh, you know, I can eat a big meal, and within two and a half, three hours, four hours, that's gone. That's about half gone, I mean, about half gone. But after four or five hours, six hours, depending on my metabolism, there's nothing left. And that's that's a hard meal. Uh, jello, fruit, oranges, grapes, bananas, that's anything that's got a lot of water content, watermelon, that's gone within a minute. I mean, I, I could eat a handful of grapes, and in 15 minutes, you wouldn't know I ate anything. So, mm-hmm. because of the water content. So, it depends on the meal that they ate. So, if you find somebody with, with food in their belly, um, they probably died within two or three hours of eating that meal. That's where it becomes important. Who are they with within two or three hours of that meal? All right. So, well, let's just use Margaret. Uh, if she has a few ounces of tea in her stomach then you know that's it. But if she's got a full meal in her stomach and she had, you see, a, you know, package for pork chops and you see potato skins and you see uh, a bag of green beans, then you're going to know she died right after she ate dinner. Yeah. Yeah, that, that helps us to know that. That's right. So, okay. All right. Well, let's, um, let's go ahead. We take a little break after the first hour. And so we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back. Yes, ma'am. You're listening to Claire and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien. We'll be right back after this.
for your vaping needs and accessories, then check out the guys at sub Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at sub Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. sub Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Coming to the Ola Gym, Saturday, June 29th, it's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace Muta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion, D-Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas wrestling organization. know if anybody heard today Marie Fredrickson from Roxette passed away. Yeah, I didn't know so that until to, you told me that. That pay tribute I was to over, her tonight. I was over here jam yeah. rocking out. <laughs> so I yeah, well, I I contemplated playing the look, but then I thought Joyride was a song that a lot of people probably hadn't even heard. So I decided to go with that one. If you would have played, if you would have played the look, I probably would have played the whole daggum song and been singing at the top of my lungs. Just saying. <laughs> well, okay, I'll remember that. I'll, I'll work that into the schedule. Hey, make it happen. <laughs> All right, so post-conviction litigation. Um, We see in a lot of cases uh, big-name pathologists coming in and lodging a lot of criticisms against original coroners or investigators or even medical examiners 
who uh, gathered information. Sometimes the criticism is warranted because they didn't gather enough information or they didn't document it properly. Although sometimes when you're coming in 25 years or 30 years after the fact, because our our systems have continued to evolve and we've learned, you know, what we need and what we need to know over time and worked at creating better practices. I think you would agree with that. Yeah, I, if you're asking me, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly because the um, – you know, again, we did things differently 25 years ago. 25 years ago, we didn't have DNA, uh, certainly the way we have it now. I mean, 10 years ago, five years ago, we didn't have DNA the way we have it now. And so so things were different. And and you have a lot of small jurisdictions where, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to compare everything to Mayberry, but, but you know, think about a, a town like Mayberry. Um, they're going to do the best they can. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. when you're looking at even five years ago, sometimes even today, they don't. They just don't do the proper death investigation, but they do the best they can. And then, you know, somebody comes along and looks at it, and, they, and of course, they can critique the car out of it. And, and I want to say too, some of the things that I looked at in the Swerdin case and the Reed case, some of the things that interest me is, um, like one of the, the the chief pathologists changed her opinion in one of them. One of the things she said was, you know, uh, I wasn't given the opportunity. To answer these questions, I was asked specific questions about specific things. I had to answer those, and I wasn't. So, when you look at the trial transcript, you know it, it, the, the defense and/or prosecution, uh, they made the case, they painted the picture they wanted to paint, and they asked the question of the quote expert, and they only asked the questions that they knew the answer to, and and of course they don't let you expound on things. And so, you know, in her well, opinion, she she kind of said that. And uh, well, that. If you're talking about Joy Carter, we'll get that, we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about swearing in. Uh, because one thing you have to keep in mind, the defense attorneys have this great thing called cross-examination. Uh-huh. And so they also have an opportunity to test and challenge if it's a coroner's investigator that does the initial scene work. They have the opportunity to test and challenge the information, the report, et cetera. So uh-huh. we'll talk about that a little bit later in the in the uh, when we talk about swearing in, because I know exactly uh-huh. what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, so, but yeah, and, and I think the resources now that are available online are vastly improved over what might have been available in 1990 when there wasn't even really that much of an internet. Oh, absolutely. Where to get training, you'd have to leave your jurisdiction and pay to go somewhere and pay to be put up and stay in a hotel while you went through training. Right. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people – Consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, still yet today it's very expensive. I mean, it, you know, that's the business I'm in is training, and and um, that's very expensive. The price is, of course, maybe one thing, but like you said, you got all the other stuff around it, and so some agencies just, just you know can't afford that. And and of course in right. this court type stuff, um, 
and, and I want to be cautious here not to get myself in too much trouble, but uh, in some jurisdictions, some of these people have public defenders, and public defenders have lots of cases, and they move things through pretty quick. And maybe, hypothetically, possibly, it could be a situation where the public defender didn't raise the objections because they didn't know how to, and they're rushing through cases. Now, I don't, I'm not saying about these two cases. I'm just saying hypothetically as a whole. That's why some of this evidence don't get entered because you, you're right. Cross-examination is available, but the attorney's got to know how to do it. Well, it, it's um, – cross-examination is not really a matter of whether or not the opinions are entered because they are entered. Cross-examination challenges the credibility of a witness. And yes, if the attorney asks the right challenges question. the weight of that witness's testimony. Right. Yes. And the, ultimately, the jury makes a decision as to uh, as to whether or not the the witness is entitled to first be believed, and then whether or not their testimony carries any weight as to reasonable doubt or the guilt of the defendant or anything like that. And while there are situations uh, where public defenders are not as experienced yet. Uh, I know in these two cases, the, the 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 even though they were public defenders, they had a lot of experience with capital murder cases, because under the ABA standards, you can't represent a capital murder defendant if you'd never done it before. By the uh, time I these think. cases were tried. And so, but even even a, a, you know any litigator is going to be is going to be good. That's kind of a confusing statement you just said. They can't be on a capital murder case if they've never been on a capital <laughs> murder case before. <laughs> the ABA set up standards that basically, to be the first chair in a capital murder case, you had to have prior experience with capital murder. You can be a second chair. And that's another thing, another distinction in Swearingen and Reed. They each had two attorneys. Okay. It wasn't okay. a single now, attorney. It's to be a first chair. You can you can a represent a capital murder as a second chair without the experience. But if you're going to be the lead attorney, you have to have experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know Lydia Clay Jackson and Calvin Garvey each had, with Rodney Reed, they each had pretty significant capital murder experience in Texas. They were not fresh out of law school. That's another um, misportrayal. I think that that uh, in capital cases is an overworked, underpaid, underappreciated public defender. And I've worked with a gentleman who is a public defender in his spare time, and they are very, um, very good advocates for their clients. That's the ones you want. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was a he was a civil litigator in his day job, but he was an instructor. At a law school and worked with the law school's cap um, law school's public defender program, so he would be appointed by the state 
of Louisiana to represent defendants in criminal cases in Orleans Parish. Yeah. So, um, and so what we see in post-conviction litigation is these big names come in and they offer alternative estimates of time of death. However, what I've seen is that they will rely on one or two factors based on interpretations of photographs and sometimes offer opinions or cite evidence that is contradicted by autopsy report. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that with Reed. And then, of course, the then those are held out, those opinions are held out as forensic evidence in and of themselves and proclaiming in the media that cases are medically and scientifically impossible or that guilt is medically and scientifically impossible and, and becoming an advocate mm-hmm. rather than an objective expert who's just seeking the truth. Right, and that's where experts have to be very cautious in, you know, first off, that term expert can be loosely uh, used, but but the expert has to be very cautious in, in just the facts and uh, not give a lot of opinion. And the other thing about that I, expert testimony, and I've, and I've had to do some of this on some uh, out-of-state cases that I've been hired to weigh in on as an expert, uh, the defense attorney and the prosecutor, but in these cases, defense attorney, uh, they ask five questions, four questions, whatever it is. Here's the case. Here's everything. I want to know these five questions. Uh, is this possible or did this happen or whatever? So based upon the facts that we have, we give an opinion. Now, we may not know everything about the case. They're asking, they're asking us, you know, could this six-inch knife have left a nine-inch hole? Yeah. I mean, you know, where, where were they said that? that? That's possible based on these facts. Well, we may not know the rest of the story, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're, just, we're just giving our opinion based upon the, you know, the questions that we're asked because, again, we're not, we're not weighing in on the rest of it. So sometimes that can cloud it up too. Right. And so we'll, we'll move on with uh, Texas versus Reed. Um, Michael Bodden. Uh, he actually testified at a post-conviction hearing. Uh, Leroy Riddick and um, Werner, Werner Spitz filed declarations or affidavits, but never testified. And then Cyril Wecht apparently came in on a public relations thing with Dr. Phil. I don't think he was ever officially okay. part of the uh, defense expert brigade. And they all based their opinions on their interpretation of liver mortis from photographs. Yes. And declaring from the photographs that it was fixed, even though I've checked and there's nowhere where liver was noted as either being fixed or not fixed. 
which is a failure of documentation in the original investigation. And right. that rigor was um, based on their interpretation of a crime scene video. Rigor was resolving at the time the body was was moved from the scene for transport to the medical examiner's office. Right, and, and so I sent you. you know, I sent you a lot of documentation. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I mean. You know, you're you're dealing with some experts there that are that are experts. I mean, you can't you you a person can't argue too much about uh, you know whether or not Biden knows what he's talking about. Uh, but again, you know, without without knowing much, I don't want to do what we're accusing others of doing. But but I will say this, and I've read some of this testimony and stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know what else he knows. I, I don't know if he was able to look at uh, and you like you said the investigation reports didn't really show that, but uh, just looking at a photograph, uh, I can tell you there's lividity, uh, but I can't tell you for sure if it's fixed. It just just as a photograph, okay. and, unless someone has blanched beside it and took a photograph, and then I can say, oh, yeah, see, there's a thumbprint. I can see it's not – and in their summary report, it says, I did this. This is what – well, now I can testify though, based upon what the investigator did. But if none of that was done at the scene, then that can be <clears> – <throat> You know that that can come into question, and in that particular right. case, if Doctor Biden is right and that lividity was fixed, then that's a very important issue. It, it you know, the wrong, well, the wrong part may be that the scene investigation wasn't done right. Okay, now in the uh, the photographs of the face and the shoulder, the body was lying in direct sunlight from sunrise, which was what six thirty, six forty in the morning. Mm-hmm. until the body was discovered at 3 p.m. And the original medical examiner said that that was sunburn. Okay. And you notice on the abdomen, there's no consistent lividity. On the abdomen, they don't note any lividity on the legs. So it's kind of hard to figure out what position the body would have been in for lividity to form just on the face and one shoulder and part of the upper chest. Yeah, I mean, they would have had to have been, you know, laying on that side, upside down, you know, for a, a while just to be in that area and for it to be fixed. There would have been a lot of cooling, so it would have been, in my opinion, a lot darker. But again, you know, we're going on photographs, so we got to be careful. But right. it could have been some sunburn. Okay, because that's what that was the trial testimony of the original medical examiner was that there was sunburn on her face and I think it was the shoulder and part of the upper chest. Right. Well, see, that's your best evidence. Now, the investigator at the scene, the medical examiner at autopsy. So unless you unless somebody has a reason to think that that one or both of them are in some way. You know, trying to frame somebody, or they've been paid off, or whatever. You know, whatever. Uh, right. Unless you, unless you have facts of that, then your best evidence is going to be the people that were at the scene and the medical examiner did the autopsy to tell you whether or not that was lividity or sunburn. Right. So, and the so I, the autopsy report notes posterior dependent lividity, which is consistent okay. with the body's position at the scene. 
when found. Yeah. When found, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that, and then, like I said, Rigger, they're talking about they see on the video her arm flops, and one of the investigators said her head moves. Now, but then, but they're saying that that was that that was. Um, that that rigor had already went through its process. Correct. Right. So they're they're thinking this has been thirty six hours or twenty four to thirty six hours. That's what they're saying. So the the rigor rigor was already releasing at that time. Is what they're trying to determine. Correct. Correct. <clears throat> right. So which, which again that should be noted in a report. Uh, yes, you can you can look at the the, the video, but uh, the video won't necessarily show a person whether that was uh, coming into rigor mortis or out of rigor mortis. So let's say someone had laid there for a, a, a couple of hours and they got a sunburn, and when you're moving them, uh, you know their their arm would not you know would have moved it wouldn't have been in full rigor after a couple of hours. The question is, okay. was lividity on the back fixed? Right. And that wasn't noted by the and that's uh, important note. medical examiner, and I believe there was some rigor at the scene because they were um, – their handling of the body at the scene was impeded by rigor. Okay. Yep. So, like, yeah, they right. couldn't really turn her over, um, according to the notes from the scene. Mm-hmm. And I believe the the – the prosecution's based on how she was dressed at the time her body was found that she had left her apartment for work at three o'clock in the morning, and her body was found at three in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah, been about a period of about twelve it, hours. Yeah, and where it was found, probably by understand right that what probably been the location where the homicide took place that was where the body was dumped correct correct and um but she was transported in the truck and she would have been driving the truck 35 miles from her apartment in Giddings to her job in Bastrop Texas mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's yeah there's a second crime scene somewhere Right, um, and, and there was some saliva on the the hump, the transmission hump. Okay, uh, what? And so that was the fluid. I, I was wondering if it was decomp fluid or, or but it was saliva. That's the fluid they found was a, was the saliva. That well, it's it was described by different people. Some described it as viscous. The photographs show a white fluid um, that. Looks like saliva to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I found one, you know, one photograph, and it's not a very, very good copy. Um, mm-hmm. So I did, I wasn't able to send that one to you. But it looks like it's, it's not, it's not like purge fluid with you know, mucus and yeah. blood not dark. coming out dark, like was on her face, on her nose and and mouth, on some of the right. scene photographs. Right, right. Which, <clears throat> but that's another thing. Doctor Bodden is saying um, that that is purge fluid because he can tell from a photograph. 
Well, one thing that – so I don't know about that, but, but one thing it does that photograph is fairly consistent in is <clears> – <throat> You know the the way the the way that fluid is running out of her nose and mouth. Um, I mean that's consistent with what purge fluid looks like when it runs out of your nose and mouth. Uh, I mean that looks appropriate, but but also um, you know that tells us the position the body was in when that purge fluid came out if the body hasn't been moved. But what we don't know really in this case is. Did that did that purge fluid come out of her mouth because the investigators the scene had rolled her around a little bit and then it came out spilled out they put her back on her back and it shows that trail or and 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 forgive me because I may have got I may have missed this part but so the was she laying on was the lividity that they're saying possibly lividity on, on her head and her shoulder was that her left side or her right side. I don't remember because the bird, the purge fluid was pouring out of the right side of her mouth and the nose. You know, I'm, I think it was, I don't remember. And, 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 and I don't remember. I know, I know that from the photographs, the purge was from the, from the nose and mouth was coming down the right side of her face. Which should mean, right. which should mean that she was on the, Right side of her body, if you say the lividity is, you know, on the chest and the face, you know, and the shoulder on the right side, then she should be head down with a head turned to the right, lividity to the right, head down, and the, and the purge fluid coming out. If it's opposite, then it's not lividity or someone moved the body and the purge fluid poured out when they rolled her over. Okay. Um, I'm trying and to those find are the, the little things that need to be looked at at a scene. See, those are those are the little right. things. When you, when when you look at a body laying on the ground and 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 nobody moved the body, you know, not that you know of it's the investigators, and you look at a body and the body's laying on the right or left, and purge fluid has stained on the right, someone's moved it. I mean, what again? I, I can't tell you if that lividity fixed in six hours or eight hours, but I can tell you that the fluid don't run uphill. Right. Correct. Okay. The Burn on the face. I'm trying to look and see if he says in his trial testimony whether it's left or right. Yeah, yeah and there's a lot there, so it's 119 pages. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, well. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, but I would prefer to send you more. Then you need, yeah. Then and not. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm just saying I don't know where <laughs> I don't know where to send you to find that because there's a lot there. So I don't know where to find that <laughs> particular statement. Yeah, um, Bayardo's testimony is 47 pages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know if that think, necessarily matters, but. Okay. Okay, the I'm looking for a burn. Okay. Uh post mortem burn covering most of her the left side of her face. So I think her face was tilted toward the right. Okay. So that would be consistent if she was now, well, now wait. 
So if she was laying on her back with that skin exposed and she was laying to where her head was to the right and in enough of a downward position that the, that the fluid would have ran out of her mouth, uh, at, you know, gravitational pull, um, then that would have been that would have been somewhat consistent. But if you look at those photos, that fluid. So if she was laying completely on her side, that fluid would have ran out and dripped off. But if you see that, that fluid ran all the way down, you know, down past her mandible and off, which meant she was kind of mm-hmm. in a, you know, almost a not a not a complete on her side, kind of on a flat type thing, which. Right, which again would tell me that something moved her head to let some of that spill out, because I think a lot of okay. that fluid may have stayed in her lungs and mouth until someone moved her. And I think an investigator, someone might have moved her before pictures were taken. And again, right. that's why we teach that take some overall pictures before anybody touches anything, because right there is a good example of how a right. whole, that can be argued and, for years. Right, and. I there may have been initial photographs taken that are just not available publicly online. Sure, and and that may be, but that that tells a lot if if they can look at those yeah. photos and see if that if that fluid had poured out. But you know we don't have that luxury of having those. But I'm just saying if they if they didn't take photos, then you know that that can that can cause a hole for this fluid run to be argued where if there was right. photos before they started working on her then we know or look you know so yeah. all right so okay well that i think that's uh that's good on read and then on swearing in uh one of the one of the issues that they raised was the condition of internal organs suggested a, a shorter postmortem interval. Right. And they also raised entomology uh, evidence as well. Right. And I believe uh, Swearingen was the one where he was incarcerated uh, during the you know the, the, the last couple of weeks of December. Which would have narrowed his capability of committing that crime, right? Correct. That was the argument. Right, right. And you know, some of the things that I read through there was I agree that you know that don't see any evidence that you know he put her in a cooler or a freezer and then dumped her body uh, to to lessen that time frame because that there's there's evidence that'll show. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot about that that um, in the in the post-trial argument, I have to agree with with that. Um, it, it it seems like there's a good case for he might not have been the guy. <laughs> well, one of the things um, the affidavit that you're talking about or declaration from Joy Carter, she was the original medical examiner, right? <clears throat> that was prepared for her by Swearingen's counsel. And she signed it and returned it, which was she had, her testimony at a hearing was that she contacted his office, requested certain changes, and then signed it and returned it to him. Okay. And that it was filed without the changes she requested being made. 
And so at a post-conviction hearing, she essentially recanted that affidavit because it had been prepared for her by the defense attorneys and had been filed without making changes that she had requested, though she had no documentation of what those changes were. Okay. Um, Right. And so that is – that's where they never asked me about histology. They never asked me about that. Um, In the declaration, and that's another thing too because my dad was a marine surveyor and he did expert work, and he was one of the people that would say, okay, you need to – we need to talk about this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And I was present at a deposition with him because he couldn't drive and needed somebody to bring him to him from the deposition. And after the deposition, when the attorney said, oh, well, is there anything you'd like to add? My dad said, yes. <laughs> and he added um, information that he hadn't been asked about in the deposition. Mm-hmm. So I think Dr. Carter really could have if she talked about histology to the prosecutor, she also had the defense also had an opportunity to meet with her, and they're usually good about meeting with medical examiners and going over information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, then she it could have been it could have been explored at trial. Right. But I think Swearingen right. was a case where the histology, which I couldn't find any other case where condition of internal organs, and it wasn't all internal organs. It was selected internal organs that weren't as decomposed as they allegedly should have been. Right, and and of course, with any other decomposition, there's certain organs that's going to show signs of decomposition a lot faster than others, just because of their uh, they're, they're not as much muscle. Uh, you know, they can decompose faster. They're, they're, they're thin and fragile where, um, you know, like, like the heart, um, you know, the, the heart muscle, you can look at slides of the heart muscle and you can get a, not me, but the doctors can, can get a really good indication of, of some times of death because of the way the heart muscle decomposes. And, and whether or not it is decomposed, and that's also where they can find some, some ruptured um, at the cellular level and stuff for whether or not the body was frozen. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that um, when I – like one of, the, one of the things that I read was from an outside consulting case. Um, well, it looks like it was Stephen Pulsnick. Yeah. Yes, Stephen Pulsnick. Um he wrote an opinion, and he talked about the microscopic slides and things like that, which what, what he says, I seem to agree with what he's saying. And, and, and here's the thing. We're not ta- – in this, in this Werner case, we're not talking about hours. We're talking about days. Mm-hmm. And, and, the temperature, and the temperature during that time was of enough. Now, there were some cold nights, but it was enough that the body would have decomposed a lot more, and it was in a relatively fresh state. 
again, like you know, at the top of last hour, we were talking about these rates of changes, and we're talking about hours. And I know, I know that you know, 24 hours, 36 hours is three days, but you're looking at a lot of changes in 36 hours, especially when you're when you're getting into 70, 75 degrees during the day, and even 68, even if it did drop to 40. Well, we're talking about what? Uh, forgive me, I'm, uh, four weeks, three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Well, December seventh to January third, so that's almost a month. You're looking. I mean, that a month being in this type of condition, that body would have been in a very advanced state of decomposition because you was reaching highs during the day of of high seventies, eighties. <clears throat> Um, so you know, I think and, that, and she didn't have that. I, I think that um, one of the factors she was found in the national forest, mm-hmm. and the temperature data is not from a location. I think it's the closest to the national forest, but it doesn't necessarily reflect. Accurately, the national forest. It was a lot of tree cover. It was cold and wet. Well, but that for a part of the time, I think they had. I think they. I think the temperature data was a little skewed. Okay. Um, And I, I don't. I wish I'd sent you that. um, I had somewhere a a thing that showed. The week that she disappeared, it stayed no higher. I think the highest was like fifty-five. Okay, but so and when it down uh, and went down a lot during the night. Right. Then so, they had a more but, temperate week, but the temperature yeah, that night yeah. went down below below forty. Yeah. How far away was the weather station where they're getting this data? You know what? Um, let me look and see if I could find the weather station. And, and you know the, the the thing is, we, you know, we're 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 armchair quarterback in this thing from 1998. But still, you know, when you're reaching temperatures, I, I mean, we store if we don't freeze bodies, we never we never freeze bodies for autopsy, but. Um, if we don't freeze bodies, then we're trying to keep the bodies around 34 degrees. We don't want them to freeze, but we want them to be really close uh, because it stops everything and it slows everything down and it's odor and things like that. Well, 45, 55 degrees, your body is still decomposing. Now, true, it's going to be slower than if it's 90, but there's still a lot happening there um, when you're, you know, when you're at those higher temperatures. Um, the body was still composed at 34 degrees. Unless it's frozen, and unless it's come to a frozen mm-hmm. state, then it'll stop stuff. Um, again, we're looking at a month. If, if, if the body was deposited yeah. there on December 7th, and it was found on January 3rd, you're still... I didn't see any time they got below freezing, so there would still be some... What, what would have... I mean, even the outside of the body wasn't green and bloated. There wasn't any blackening. There was I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't. It just. No. I, again, I can't tell you. When was he incarcerated? 
December 11th? I think she disappeared on December 8th. Actually, she disappeared December 8th. Um, And he was incarcerated on December 11th. Uh, And actually, he was incarcerated and an investigator was at the little corner store where he and Melissa had talked a couple of days before she disappeared and he freaked out and went on a led the detective on a uh, bit of a high speed chase mm-hmm. oh and so um, and of course you have he initially said don't know who she is she has your phone number oh I gave that to her so she can't touch with my sister you know kind of like inconsistent statements right and he was incarcerated after December 11th but right her, she was wearing the same clothing uh-huh. that she disappeared wearing uh-huh. it didn't appear as if she'd been wearing it for days prior to being left in the forest okay um that's right. And also, she had eaten chicken nuggets and, and tater tots, and remnants of chicken nuggets and tater tots were found in her stomach. Uh, well, was that was that so her, her disappearance? Other one? That huh? was Melissa Trotter. And so, okay. one of the re- one of the reasons these theories for Swearingen didn't didn't were unsuccessful is because they created more questions than they answered. Mm-hmm. They created the question of where was she? And when you think about it, was somebody feeding the girl chicken nuggets and tater tots and nothing else? Well, and one of these reports here from uh, Pulsnick, I guess, he says a, photo, a photograph of the gastric contents demonstrate there was whole red meat and scallions in her stomach. That yeah, that's his his interpretation based on photographs. I, and and they could be wrong. I mean, obviously, just but but um, but generally, chicken nuggets wouldn't like look like red meat, but it could have, I guess. And if, and again, a photograph is not your best evidence. <laughs> this is it's described in the autopsy. Frankly, and I'm I'm maybe a little bit too cynical, um, at least where this is concerned. I, I think that they will say what they need to say to try and get the guy a new trial. Sure, that, I I can believe that could happen. Yes, and you know, and and I think especially where the death penalty is concerned, um, you know the 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 aim, the ends justify the means. Right. To a degree. But but is there any indication that this girl was held somewhere? No. That's the thing. I mean, I didn't see anything in the reports, but have you anything you've heard or read that they're saying that maybe she was held by somebody? No. And that, well, that's the thing. They, he presents it and it's a possibility of her being held but by whom and where are questions that 
he has to answer with clear and convincing evidence that proves the who wasn't him right? and the where wasn't his trailer. Right, right. And and the two the two big conflicting issues here is yes, there's there's some uh, advanced decomposition on her head with some insect activity. Uh, there it looked like there had been animal activity. Uh, or some predators had had eaten mm-hmm. some of the uh, tissue, and of course, once that happens, that speeds things up too. Um, but again, the, the decomposition on the face was not consistent with the decomposition in the body. I mean. You would, you know, you should be kind of so. So the two big things about this case is very confusing. Is that one, the, there was it doesn't appear to be the level of decomposition there should be with being in the woods for a month. However, um, you know, if if her last if her last meal was this chicken nugget meal and the autopsy is finding remnants of chicken nuggets. Uh, well, that would have said she would have died within a couple of hours of eating those. So now we're going back to, um, unless you, again, you're right, unless you had the same meal. Uh, but then we're looking at how much, again, the body decomposes and the, and the gut decomposes. And unless it's a really cold environment, the, the contents of that stomach will, will break down and decompose too, just as rotten meat. So, so that's what's confusing is how can we have food product in a stomach that's been in a body for 30 days in an environment that's not frozen? The two do not line up. Uh, there's, you know, again, we're not there, but there's something seems to be missing here to tie this together because the two are polar opposites in a way. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the things is that sometimes you're going to have you're you're sometimes you're gonna have inconsistent findings that don't add up. Right. I mean they obviously okay. have uh, more evidence on him than than just the time frame of death. So Right. And I found uh Lloyd White's statement the temperature data was gathered from the NOAA at Conroe, mm-hmm. Texas airport. Which I think is slightly south. Um, well, Sam Houston National Forest is huge. Yeah. Um, it's in the Houston area. And let's see. I'm looking at Google Maps to see. Okay, Sam Houston National Forest is north of Conroe on I-45. Like I said, it's huge. It covers several counties. They were from Willis, which is north, almost dead north. And I can't read a map to save my life. Okay. Pardon? I, I was going to say, would it be 25 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles? But then you started to answer that already. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm going to run uh, a map, <laughs> a distance. Okay, it's uh, 9.4 miles 
roughly between Willis and Conroe. Well, that's what I'm saying. The the temperature data is in Conroe. Yeah. And I think she was in the same Houston closer to Willis. Which is about so nine, probably within within ten or fifteen miles. Yeah. Okay, so so I would have to I would have to say that the weather data at the airport would be accurate for where she was at. Now, obviously, we might have a degree or two difference, but fifty miles, a hundred miles, then then maybe there'd be a weather system hanging out a hundred miles away for a while that cooled things down that wasn't the same at the airport. And when you're looking at two hours away, a hundred miles, two two and a half hours away. Um, but but 10 or 15 miles, I mean, you can have some weather changes, yes, but mm-hmm. sustained long-term temperature differences just 10 miles apart would is nearly impossible over the long right. run, and especially over 30 days. And so I would have to believe that, that the weather data from the airport 10 miles away would be a good indication of the, the weather at where she was found. And if there was a lot of tree covering, it might have made it a little, a little cooler in the trees. Um, but, but still, the temperature, you know, may vary a little because the sun's not beating on it. But that weather data is not really taking the weather of the temperature of, of where it is when the sun beats down on it. So if it says it's 70 degrees, and in that in that covered area of the trees, it's probably 70 degrees, 68 degrees, or or something like that. Um, so. Again, that throws up another red flag is that if that was the temperature and we're going to assume that that was 10 miles away, the mm-hmm. body should be more decomposed. Okay. Now, I did find another reference. Uh, it was in one of the briefs. The temperature did go below 30 for mm-hmm. 12 of the days that she was missing. Um, but at night. It didn't. It didn't specify whether it was at night or whether it was all the way around. Okay. I had a chart, and I I don't know. I don't remember what I named it. So, so I I one, don't have one, it. <laughs> well, this one sentence here it says that that you know the NOA temperature it says uh, demonstrates a wide range of maximum temperatures from 34 degrees Fahrenheit to 79 degrees Fahrenheit. With a minimum temperature range of 26 degrees Fahrenheit to 49 Fahrenheit for the last six days prior to recovery of the deceased, and the maximum range of 62 to 73, and the minimum of 34 to 53, these temperatures range from when she went missing to January 3rd. So what they were telling us here is that is the two weeks prior to recovery, and then uh, again uh, 34 to 53 for the whole month. Well. I agree that that you know the whole the whole average of thirty four to fifty three would slow things down, but when you're seventy nine degrees, you're still going to have decomposition taking place at to some degree, and there was some on there, but it but it just didn't seem to be as as consistent as as it was throughout the body or should be more consistent throughout the body. And again, we're making the same thing. We're going on these reports and looking at photographs. Which can also skew our opinion. Mm-hmm. I agree. But yeah. but just based on that, I'm having a hard. 
I'm having a little bit of a hard time just on the 30,000 foot view. And, and please make sure I, I mean, understand it's a 30,000 foot view, but for her laying in the woods from December 8th to January 3rd and having what, what's been presented to me as the amount of decomposition and body changes, I, I find that hard to believe that, that, that there wouldn't be more decomposition. So, Again, I don't know what I don't know, but based on that, it seems pretty unlikely. Okay. All right. Well, that is – that was interesting. These are interesting cases. And that – Yes. Yeah. That, they are very – they are very interesting. Um, but you can have that. Mm-hmm. That's it, it. Something just doesn't add up, right? Yep, absolutely. And, and that's why you know it's going through appeal process, right? Exactly. So, and un- unfortunately, that was not successful for Mister Swearingson. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and again, because there's more than this against him. So, so even though we may disagree, as some have, with the time of, that she was in the woods um, or the de- level of decomposition, that isn't what convicted him. There's a whole lot more evidence against him, circumstantial or otherwise, that convicted him. Mm-hmm. This, this is a question, and it and certainly is a question, but it, it, if, if this was the only thing it was based on, then I don't think – you know, then they wouldn't be in prison, but – uh, and again, like we started at the top of the hour, the, the, the medical findings and postmortem intervals is a very important thing, and it's very scientific. But there's a lot of, of the, there's a lot of things that interfere with that, and there's a lot of things that can, you know, eight hours can be 24 hours, depending on environments and clothing things. Nothing is exact. And what, all we talked about. One of the main things, that the only thing that is exact is a life cycle of a blowfly based upon temperature. And entomologists mm-hmm. can get that down to nearly perfect because mm-hmm. maggots just do what maggots do. Right. And I don't think the entomology evidence helped them as much. No, because it wasn't collected at the scene correctly from what I read. Right, and so yep. that ended up not helping him. And um, I think one of the other problems that he that we saw with Swearingen was all of his uh, experts had a different range and a different mm-hmm. target date. Mm-hmm. And I think that's some at at, at some point you get into this. Post-conviction attorneys get into quantity over quality, mm. so they bring in all these, you know, high-powered, prestigious medical examiners, mm-hmm. and they all render their opinions, and then their opinions don't agree with one another. Right, right, and that, but they and think then that can the quantity yeah, because they can't answer the question. Yeah. Right, right, and 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 if they if they cause enough confusion, then that can warrant a retrial. Well, no, not necessarily. 
if they present a confusing case in post-conviction, then it actually won't overcome because a a post-conviction court is going to look at the original evidence. And if the original evidence makes sense and the confusing post-conviction case doesn't, then they're not gonna they're not gonna succeed. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because I think that's another legal legal principle, legal fact that lay people don't understand. They think Rodney Reed or Larry Swearingen they're going to present all their experts, and the court is going to give them a new trial, and they're going to win. And in mm-hmm. reality, they're going to present all their experts and all their testimony, and then the court's going to decide whether it measures up to render the original evidence untrustworthy. Right. And if it doesn't, then they're they're not going to get a new trial. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Because again, they're they're looking to see what real evidence comes up that can contradict the original and if it's all too confusing then um, it, it won't contradict it. They'll just ignore it. They'll throw it out because it doesn't meet the criteria. Yeah. Well, it won't It won't rise to the level of clear and convincing evidence. Right, right. That yep. it's, you've got to overcome you've got to overcome the court's um, confidence in the original mm-hmm. verdict. Or the court has to find that a reasonable jury, having all of the evidence, would be unable to convict. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think we're almost out of time. Thank you again for joining us tonight. It was really informative. Absolutely. I completely enjoyed all of that. A lot of it went over my head, but, you know, hey. I certainly understood some of it. And um, I had contacted you about Brad Hicks on his cold case. Sure. And I'm looking forward to hearing that, his cold case. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't contacted me back yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And when he does, we'll connect and, and uh, move forward on that. Yeah, I think yes, he's absolutely. still in the planning stages. I, yeah. I believe yeah, no, he fine. is. I believe he is. One thing uh, I wanted to ask you about, because before we get off of here, I wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned, you know, a lot of the defense tends to tear apart uh, original medical examiners, you know, what their findings were. And Mm -hmm. one thing I was going to ask you about was a while back, me and Brad actually did a different show called uh, Behind the Curtain. And it was about uh, the three boys. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're uh, the cases referred to as the boys on the tracks. But uh, there was three boys. Uh, they were in, two. I believe it was Benton or Bryan, two Arkansas. Two boys. Okay, two boys. excuse me. Two boys, and uh, they were found on the tracks. And the medical examiner at the time uh, was Rami <clears throat> Malik. And I've noticed that uh, going back and listening to that, one of the things I picked up on was that this lady had hired a private investigator, and he was 
just completely uh, tearing Mr. Malik a new one for his findings. Should we necessarily like? Can somebody? This is probably the '80s when this happened. I believe is what it is. Lisa probably knows for sure better than I do. But can somebody really come back that far later and go and tear somebody? Uh, tear somebody for, you know, possibly being incorrect, or would they, you know, with that time passing, would that be something that you could even question going back that far? Well, I mean, you, you certainly could because there's two two points here before we're out of time. Number one, uh, new evidence can come up, or we understand evidence better. Um, so maybe what what was seen at the time, but this was in Arkansas, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, I have done uh, shows about Mr. Mal- Dr. Malik before, um, and you know I've got a three-part series on our podcast about uh, a case that he did, um, mm-hmm. and some questionable stuff that he did with uh, Clinton when he was governor and things like that. Uh, Malik mm-hmm. was ran out of state. Malik is a problem. Doctor Malik okay. is is not uh, what what medical examiners want to. Um, uh, be compared to. And so uh, with Malik, there was a lot of charges that um, he would just ask the police, how do you want me to rule this? And they'll tell him and he'll rule it that way. And small town Arkansas back in the 80s was about how that was working. And so if Malik is involved, then there's mm-hmm. probably a misruling. Okay. And okay. I do know a little bit about that boy on the track case and Malik is a problem. Okay. Okay. I was All definitely right. just wondering about that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Malik had some issues. Yeah, he sure did. Um, so I, I think Malik practiced too long. Yeah, and he never got it right. He continued to practice mm-hmm. and never got it right. Yeah. Well, and he didn't change with the times. No, and and there's oh well, there are some proof through some investigations that he actually, you know, he did what the police wanted without actually working investigations, and and there was there, he's made autopsy rulings and never and never cut a body. I mean, there there's a lot that Malik did that, mm-hmm. that is bad. Yeah. Oh wow. So yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was uh, Greg Larimore. Is another case that he screwed up. Yeah. In Crittenden County. Yeah. In Arkansas. So, well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you. And uh, I, if if I come up with another uh, another idea after the first of the year, I'll I'll let you know. <laughs> Absolutely, I had fun. This was great. Um, uh, it's a wonderful show. So anything I can do in the future, just let me know. Um, I'll help in every way I can. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Have a great night. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I like him. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I even though my question was broad as all get out, as far as that Rami <laughs> situation, I mean, you were on that episode, too, and I – 
really remember how bad they tore into Mr. Malik mm-hmm. about yeah. uh, his findings in that case. And I was just, you know, wondering because he said, you know, the secondary coming back after the original medical examiner isn't necessarily always going to be the best source of information. So that popped in my head. Well, I mean, in some cases, in Malik's case, it would be it would be deserved. Because he was not competent, he was not conscientious. Um, he really should not have been the chief Practicing. medical examiner in Arkansas. Right. Um, well, I mean, it's Arkansas. And, I love this state, but come yeah. on now. <laughs> well, no, I mean, Doctor <laughs> Williams, Doctor William Sterner came in and replaced him. Yeah. True. True. So. Uh, you mentioned West Memphis Three. I didn't even think about asking him about that. Uh, the oh, only no. thing, really, I can remember as far as that goes that was really in question was the bite marks. But that's about the only really thing that I can remember that was right. quote unquote in question. And you know, that's half a. Honestly, what I've seen, that's half a dozen one way, half a dozen another. It just depends on who you ask, right. whether it was bite marks or whether it was. Uh, Mark you know, Byers, animals, or Terry or Hobbs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, you know, as I've said, had they gone to hearings, it had Scott Ellington said, "Okay, we'll talk after the hearing." There would have been no plea because they would not mm-hmm. have been. They would have not gotten new trials. Right. Because. All of their evidence was hearsay and accusations against Terry Hobbs mm-hmm. and inconclusive DNA. Mm-hmm. They would have never gotten they would have never gotten new trials on based right. on that. Okay. So, but um, you know Scott Ellington, he didn't call their bluff. Honestly, part of me, part of me, part of me thinks that at that point, Arkansas just kind of, you know, not necessarily that I think they're guilty because I don't want anybody to at me on Twitter or anything. Me and you have gone back and forth on this just like we did last week on uh, on Tukey, but I think Arkansas was just fed up with the whole situation at this point and just wanted to be done with it. No, the the problem was Scott Ellington basically didn't have a dog in the fight. He wasn't the original prosecutor. Um, it wasn't his reputation. Mm-hmm. And so when they were going to take these pleas, the convictions would stand, essentially. Right. And there would be no further post-conviction claims. Mm-hmm. He took that deal. Right. Instead of and realizing plus, they're offering to plead guilty when they say they can prove they are innocent. Well, I think my deal with Call that the bluff. I think my whole situation, like I said, you know, part of it with me, part of my thinking with the whole Arkansas just wanted to wash their hands of the situation. There was so much negative press. 
about that. And, you know, there was a lot of celebrities out there trying to make Arkansas look bad and things like that, which Lord knows if it comes out one day, we find out that, you know, them boys were not guilty, then good Lord, Arkansas should look bad as anybody who, you know, wrongfully convicts somebody. But I think honestly, he just was like, hey, I don't want to deal with y'all. Celebrities anymore. anymore. I don't want to yeah. deal with none of that anymore. Y'all just go ahead and take this deal. Yeah, and well, no, I mean they they went to him and offered the deal. And he's like, okay, yeah, hell yeah, I'll take it. Right. The defense came up. The state did not offer Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly a deal to drop mm-hmm. their claims. Okay. I know that's how they portray it, but that is not how it happened. They came up with the Alford pleas. They went to Scott Ellington with the Alford plea. And Dustin McDaniel basically chimed in and said, okay, yeah, let's take the plea. Let's, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe it wasn't and even I know, Ellington I know that for was a fact, part of it. Maybe it was I, McDaniel. It was McDaniel and Ellington both. But I know mm-hmm. for a fact it was presented as a done deal to right. Michael's parents. Okay. So they didn't they didn't say, look, this is where we stand. If they get new trials, it's been twenty years, we're not gonna be able to we're not gonna be able to put up, you know, half a case. Mm-hmm. Um you know, this is why we're considering it. No, look, we they came to us. They offered us a deal. We're taking the deal. They're getting the deal. They're getting out of prison. That's how it present, and that's how it was presented to Todd and Dana Moore. Well, uh, you know, obviously, I don't want to take too long because I know Blog Talk's liable to cut us off. But real quick, I, I do have to ask, based upon what you said. Uh, and based on what our previous situation was with that, uh, with um, Nico LaHood's uh, family not getting told about that situation either, is it normal policy for uh, is it normal policy to do something like that, or is that just uh, being a good human being type of deal? Well, I think it's I think it's more being a good human being and having consideration for a victim's family to at least go to them and explain the pros and cons of the case as it stands at that moment and to say, we are considering doing this because if we don't, they may end up having their convictions reversed and we may have to go to a new trial. And if they're acquitted, they walk. Mm-hmm. And then they sue the state for millions of dollars. Although in Arkansas, not really possible because Arkansas doesn't have a wrongful conviction statute. So they would have had mm-hmm. to have proved negligence or wrongdoing on the part of the prosecutor in order to win a wrongful conviction claim. Right. And that's okay. going to look at the evidence against – and it would have – it likely would have ended up a lot like Anthony Porter's claim mm-hmm. against the city of Chicago. 
or the state of Illinois where he got nothing because his civil jury said he was guilty. Right, right. And I mean, I I, so. I don't know what's going on with that situation, if they're even trying to do anything with it. I remember them saying they were going to continue to try to fight it outside, but hell – Jesse's been to jail been four eight times years. now it's been since the eight, yeah <laughs> eight years eight, Which, and every now and then they they pop back up in the in the media and on social media but there's no motion to vacate those offer pleas right okay. I think it was you that was telling me though that they were supposed to stay out of trouble. And Jesse getting arrested for the public intox or whatever he got arrested for could possibly have jeopardized that for him. Did you ever look for into him, that? Well, it's discretionary. Um, and it's discretionary on the part of Ellington. Okay. Okay. So – um, now, one, and I don't know that any of those cases against Miss Kelly have ever been resolved yet. Yeah, I, I, honestly, all I ever see is blurbs about the situation, like yeah. he got arrested for whatever, and but then it goes away. If if he's got a felony, or if he ends up being arrested and convicted of a felony, he will go back to DOC for 21 years. Is that it, though? Mm-hmm. Is that the rest of his Senate? Yeah, they had a suspended sentence agreement 21 years. Now, oh, okay. granted, if if he manages to wait until 11 years to mm. get that felony, because the suspended sentence agreement expires in 2021. Mm-hmm. So he's got to make it two more years without a felony. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, let's put a bow on this one. Let's do it. Thank, <laughs> thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Michael and I want to thank Mr. Dake for taking the time to join us tonight. Join us next week, Tuesday, December 17th, 2019, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 42, Thoroughbred Horse Racing. We'll be joined by Dr. Brian Langlois and Michael Ammo, board members of Thoroughfan, a 501c organization founded to retain and enrich the experiences of existing horse racing fans to attract new fans and to give fans a voice in the industry. We'll talk about horse racing, including improvement of fan experience, controversies in the media, and efforts to ensure that horses are taken care of after their careers on the racetrack are over. We'll also talk about the work Dr. Langlois and Mr. Ammo are doing in their communities to enrich the lives of all creatures, great and small. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.